name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So, I'm listening to the children's sermon. I was having that same feeling. I know some of the, um, some schools are back, but as you heard, the kids were all looking forward to, what, Halloween? Um, I just want this feeling of freedom to last. So we have this feeling of this summer. This summer was going to be the free summer, right? Free to travel again, to have birthday parties, to maybe go out to eat, see people we haven't seen, uh, go back to having weddings in the church. We had weddings here, it's wonderful. Even go back to church, attend sporting events, all those things that make us feel like we're connected and free. Whatever it's meant to you this summer. I know that classes start this week and um, I just want to hold on to the, like every last drop of this feeling of what we've had. So while I'm in this expansive mood, I'm of course scrolling through my phone and I come up on an article from the New York Times that seemed the antithesis of this freedom, kind of grabbed my spirit and choked it. Um, it was that tick, tick, tick of like the school year coming, the work a day. My husband and I used to call September and May the luge. It just felt like you got on and just went to the end of the month because there were so many things with the kids and other things to do. But this, this particular article was titled, The Rise of the Worker Productivity Score. Now, you might have this at your job already. I don't have it yet. Please tell Paul <laughs> not to do this. But it was, um, it was how companies are monitoring behavior with cameras and digital trackers and taking snapshots of you during the day to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, so blue-collar jobs, some of them have had this already, like Amazon and UPS and McDonald's, um, but they have been joined now by Wall Street, by hospitals, administrators, social workers, engineers, hospice chaplains um, on this producti productivity monitoring. So what the happens in this article, if you seem to find it, find it online, is as you're reading it, it keeps coming up with these messages that say things like, are you still there? You've been idle for 37 seconds. Your score is dropping. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So then you start just scrolling randomly so it will give you a good score. Then something comes up that said, warning, you appear to be inactive. <laughs> Your reasons may be legitimate, but we're recording your idle time. These are real messages that are built into the software to have this happen. Hundreds of interviews and submissions by white collar workers have described this being tracked as demoralizing, humiliating, toxic. Of course, this led to the invention of the mouse jiggler. You might have one of these, which you stick the mice, mouse jiggler on your mouse so you can go to the bathroom and kind of jiggle some mouse while you're gone. Yeah, so that, or you know if you're doing something else, just stick the mouse jiggler on there. Some very brilliant entrepreneur, this is what they did with their idle time. Um, so it just made me think, is this the price we have to pay for a paycheck now? Um, so some people interviewed loved the system, just loved the system, because it made sure that the other employees that were sloughing off got their comeuppance, that they were penalized for their time because they were the ones following the rules and they thought everybody else should get in trouble. So just another rule for us to revel in how much better we're doing it, right? Hospice chaplains, I was really interested in this point so I idled a while um, to read and it said that they got points, higher points for visiting an actively dying patient versus someone that was just suffering. So what they would do is like, 
visit you, and if you're not dying, they like leave, and I'll be back when you're dying, because I'll get more points, right? The chaplains term this a spiritual drive-by. That's just awful. Um, Federico Mazzoli, I don't know if you've heard of his name, but he's the genius, that, one of the geniuses that developed this thing called WorkSmart software. He, after he developed it, he did it himself at his own workplace, and he got so anxious experiencing his own product that he quit his own company because it made him anxious to have these messages come up and say, what are you doing? You should be producing. So just so you know, this is why I'm hoping that Paul doesn't do this. I got a grade of poor um, reading the article. Um, it said that I idled too much. But what I found is that it, it externalized this panic-inducing internal voice that we all have anyway. And we've, this, is, this is the human condition. It's not new, it's not from the 21st century. It is this inside voice that's always telling us things like quit wasting time. You should be doing you know, what everybody else is doing. Make something happen today that just justifies taking up space on this planet. This particular software said that you can climb the corporate ladder with your productivity score. So they would apply your productivity scores to what, how you were going up the corporate ladder. So you may be thinking, well, I'm not climbing the corporate ladder, right? I, I don't have any of that in my life. But we do it anyway. That voice still does it about parenting, dieting, maybe your paycheck, maybe how you're handling your money, how you're investing or not investing. You get any kind of catalog in the mail, and there, there it is, the voice. Why doesn't your house look like that? The workout programs, what you're doing at the gym, the guy next to you who's running faster than you are, that voice is always there. But it ignores the fact that we have limitations, that we're human, right? That we're, we're built uh, with limitations. So Dave Zoll, in his new book called Low Anthropology, it's not out yet, it's in September, so put it on your calendar, it's called Low Anthropology, the Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. He wrote, modern ears tend to hear talk about human limitations as defeating. As defeating, like, no, this, the world's your oyster, right? Even shame-inducing. Far more defeating and shame-inducing is the belief that I am capable of transcending my limitations, but just haven't been able to pull it off yet have not been able to pull it off yet, right? So I, I can do it, just not today. I was a little tired today. Tomorrow I'll do it. Um, but we sometimes think of our spiritual and religious life on these same terms, don't we? We have this ladder going on. We're a little bit better today. We're a little bit less. Other people are below or above us. Um, and that we have some sort of spiritual success by being productive and doing good things, by being productive in prayer, productive in going to church, productive and doing things for God. And we're, sometimes we, we are measuring ourselves with other Christians, like how they should be doing what we're doing or that we're not, because we're desperate, desperate for a sense of progress, for knowing how much farther up the ladder we need to go to get that voice to just shut up, get that voice to be satisfied with what we're doing. So Gerhard Ferdy, wrote, the law becomes a ladder. So this is what it is, it's the law. We talk about that here. It's that taking the commands of God, but then moving them into the, the human world. And this voice is inside us, it's always been there. 
He says it's, we take that same law and we make it a ladder, a scheme by which God supposedly rewards those who live up to it and punishes those who don't. So it's truly, it's not the software and it's not the law that does this to us. It's what happens inside of us, how it makes us feel when we read these things, when the law is at play. We feel isolated. We feel lonely. We turn in on ourselves and try and make ourselves better. We turn away from God and away from the people around us. So this is the law at work, haunting us, terrorizing us, like the productivity people who want us to be more than human, telling us that we must handle life completely on our own. We must know everything, trust only ourselves to make it in the world. So Ferdy gives the best description of what's happening to us when we're spiritually weighed down by all of this, these messages of the voice, bent over by the demands of life. He has this book called Where God Meets Man because he says God is not up in the heaven waiting for us to get better. God is right down here on earth giving us what we need here. And he wrote, unmistakably, this voice arises from the demands which society makes of us, the demands of family and friends, the voices and faces of suffering humanity. It arises from the inevitability of death, the fact that life is precarious and fleeting. And above all, it is the command of God that we must love him with all our heart and our neighbor as ourselves. The law is that immediate and actual voice arising from the sum total of human experience, a voice that man can never stop in this life. So we all know that this voice tells us we're not measuring up, not producing enough work or raising our children to meet some mythical standard, not pretty enough or young enough or sometimes not old enough to be of consequence, just like we heard in our Jeremiah text today, I'm just a boy not faithful enough to be in church, not rich enough to live in this city, not smart enough to make the grade. So the voice of the law cannot be silenced by human effort. Nothing you do will satisfy that voice. Martin Luther said that the voice sounds in your heart, exhorting, piercing the heart and conscience until you do not know where to turn. It's a voice that goes on and on in endless forms, and in an infinite variety of disguises. As long as man remains in sin, the voice never stops. So in our gospel reading from Luke 13 today, we're introduced to a woman who it's told us that she has a sick spirit, that her spirit is sick, that she is bent over with this spirit that has made her um, bent over from trials and tribulations, that she just can't stand up anymore. We know what that feels like, don't we? To be sick and tired of being sick and tired. Just being bent over from what the voice is telling us, what the world is telling us. But when I was reading this, what came up in my head was that old spiritual that says, there is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. There is. The gospel says, just then there appeared a woman. So in, in the Greek, this is... I don't usually share a lot of the Greek, but this is one of my favorite parts, and it's in Luke a lot. There's a little word, it's edu, edu. So whenever you see this word, it means, whoa, something big's gonna happen. 
there's no translation for it. It's basically like, whoa, watch out. Something amazing is about to happen. So just then, when he sees the woman, it says, Edu. And then he calls her to him. He calls her to him. It's amazing how this woman is weighed down and bent over. And yet, she gets healed by absolutely no productivity or energy on her own. She didn't even come to be healed. She just appears. And Jesus calls her, just as Jesus called you today. And he tells her, you are set free. You are set free. So this voice that's inside of her that terrorizes her about she's not doing enough, she's not enough, you're set free from that. Your sin-sick soul longs for this freedom. Jesus is the only one who can set us free from this voice that terrorizes us. This is what the death and crucifixion of Jesus does. It does. It's not just a historical fact. It's something that happened that has an action in the world. It stops the tyrannizing, monitoring, and judging voice of the law that seeks to isolate us from God, which is our only hope. Jesus frees us to say to that accusing voice, Jesus loves me, this I know. Martin Luther's Reformation was based on this reality, and he wrote the gospel comforts because it puts an end to the voice of the law. The gospel is a living voice, great enough to stop the voice of the law and bring in here on earth the beginning of the new life of freedom. So what I say to you this morning is edu. Something amazing is about to happen. A new life of freedom. The gift of grace to you from Jesus Christ. So I'd like to close with the words from Frederick Buechner, who died this week at the age of 96. He's been a big inspiration in my life because he seems to be able to put into words this ineffable, ineffable faith life. He gets as close to the word sometimes as as I think some, a human can. In his book, Peculiar Treasures, he wrote, a Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I can't prove a thing, but there's something about his eyes and his voice. There's something about the way he carries his head, his hands, the way he carries his cross, the way he carries me. Jesus is not monitoring your productivity or checking on your position on the faith ladder today. He is carrying you like a small, sick child because you belong to him and he has overcome the voices of the world. Amen.